0: everything else that's gone on shall we shall we start again again with the word of prayer please father we thank you for your word your word which is there to um enlighten us to guide us and we pray lord that you'll help me today to um put over your word lord in a way that will be beneficial to the people here in jesus name amen job chapter one job chapter one There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was perfect and upright, and one that feared God and eschewed evil. And there were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. His substance also was 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 asses, and a very great household. So that this man was the greatest of all the men in the east, and his sons went and feasted in their houses every one his day, and sent and called for their three sisters to eat and to drink with them. And so it was, when the days of their feasting were gone about, that Job sent and sanctified them, rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. We know a lot about Satan today, aren't we? <laughs> and the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job? There is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and that sheweth evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Hast thou not made a hedge about him and about his house, and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the works of his hands, and his, his substance is increased in the land. But put forth, forth thine hand now, and touch all that he hath, and he'll curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power, only unto him, upon himself put no... Put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. Well, we're all familiar with the story of Job, and some of it is very familiar, as David pointed out in the Bible reading group recently. That is taught through the entire book in his time at this church. And even though we don't know for sure when Job lived, although it was probably about around the time of Abraham or even sooner, what we do know from the context of the passage is that God dealt with people in those days under what seemed like some sort of conditional covenant, similar to the one that he made with Israel. Or simply put, in in Job's day, everyone, including Satan, knew that God was rewarding godly living and godly behaviour with wealth and good health, as we heard from the passage that we read. And that's why his three friends accused him in so many words of some sort of sin, that he must have committed for the loss of his family, his wealth, And finally, his health, that we're all familiar with if we've read the book of Job. Except in Job's case, we know that something else was going on, don't we? That the loss of all his worldly goods, with the exception of his wife, was in fact a test from the Lord instigated by Satan himself. Satan, because of God's hedge of protection around Job, had to ask the Lord's permission to touch his life. And questions have been asked of pastors and teachers during this pandemic ...if it's from Satan. Does he have to ask the Lord's permission today... ...in order to attack believers... ...in the same way that he did with Job? And there's no doubt there's been much suffering... ...during this pandemic. People have lost their lives in many cases... ...or their loved ones... ...or their income, or their savings... ...and much more as we've seen... ...many businesses come to a grinding halt... ...under government restrictions. We've already mentioned the conditional covenant... ...that the Lord made with Israel... So let's have a look at it. Turn to Leviticus chapter 26. Leviticus chapter 26. You shall make you no idols nor graven image neither rear you up a standing image neither neither shall you set any stone any image of stone in your land to bow down unto it for I am the Lord your God. Ye shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If ye walk in my statutes and keep my covenants and do them, then I will give you rain in due season, and the land shall yield her increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. And your threshing shall reach unto the vintage, and the vintage shall reach unto the sowing time. And ye shall eat your bread to the full, and dwell in your land safely. And I will give peace in the land. And ye shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. And I will let red evil beasts out of the land, neither shall the sword go through your land. And you shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. And five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall put ten thousand to flight. And your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. For I will have respect unto you, and make you fruitful, and multiply you, and establish my covenant with you. And you shall eat the old store, and bring forth the old because of the new. And I set my tabernacle among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you, and will be your God, and ye shall be my people. I am the Lord your God, which brought you forth out of the land of Egypt, that ye should not be their bondman. And I have broken the bands of your yoke, and made you go upright. And so we see that if Israel worshipped and obeyed the Lord if they put their trust in him for all things that he would put a hedge of protection around them too in the same way as he seemed to have done with Job and consequently they'd be prosperous and healthy and would defeat their enemies with the Lord's help. But if they didn't obey the Lord then if we were to keep reading this passage in Leviticus we'd see the other side of the coin where the Lord imposed greater and greater discipline upon them. Until they got to the point in their own belief and rejection of him where he'd eject them from the land that he gave them in in the midst of much suffering. And we're not going to look at that suffering tonight because that's not our purpose. But it's simply to show that the Lord in the midst of that discipline of his nation Israel would use Satan and his house as, as, as his instruments as a part of disciplining his own people Israel. Turn to 1 Kings 22 and verse 15. 1 Kings 22 and verse 15. And to set the context, the Lord had already divided Israel, and Ahab, the king of the northern kingdom at this time, was firmly in idolatry, and consequently had just been condemned by the Lord. And he wished to set up an alliance with Jehoshaphat, the king of the southern kingdom, against the king of Syria, in order to retake from them Ramoth Gilead, that they'd lost after they'd lost it as part of the Lord's discipline referred to earlier. And they consulted with 400 false prophets of the northern kingdom as to whether their venture was of the Lord and would be successful. And the prophets told the two kings to go and fight without any consultation of the Lord, and the Lord would deliver Ramoth-Gilead unto them. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there not a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of him? And so Ahab said to Jehoshaphat, There's still one man. Micaiah, the son of Imlah, but I hate him, as he never says anything good about me. Not surprising, is it, given his idolatry? So they consulted with Micaiah, who gave them this message from the Lord. And Micaiah said, As the Lord liveth, what the Lord saith unto me, that I will speak. So he came to the king, verse 15, and and the king said unto him, Micaiah, shall we go against Ramoth Gilead to battle, or shall we forbear? And he answered them, possibly in a sarcastic way, and maybe to reflect the, uh, what the other prophets had said. Although we can't deduce that from the text. Go and prosper, for the Lord shall deliver it into the hand of the king. But the king got it, didn't he? Yeah. He heard Micaiah's tone. And the king said unto him, How many times shall I adjure thee that thou tell me nothing but that which is true in the name of the Lord? And Micaiah said, I saw all Israel scattered upon the hills as sheep that have not a shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master. Let them return every man to his house in peace. And the king of Israel said unto Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell thee that he would prophesy no good concerning me but evil? And Micah said, Hear thou therefore the word of the Lord, Jehoshaphat. Sorry, Ahab. <laughs> I, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne. And all the host of heaven standing by him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who shall persuade Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said in this manner, and another said in that manner. And there came forth a spirit and stood before the Lord, and said, I will persuade him. And the Lord said unto him, Wherewith? Or well, how will you persuade him? And he said, I'll go forth, and I'll be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, Thou shalt persuade him, and prevail also. So go forth and do so. Now therefore, behold, the Lord hath put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these thy prophets, and the Lord hath spoken evil concerning thee. And so we see that in the days of Israel, the Lord used Satan and his host, in this case a lying spirit, as a part of his discipline of his people Israel. And as we know, Ahab was, ki- was killed in the ensuing battle. He ignored the word of the Lord, as he'd done on many occasions previously. We see it again in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, where Satan moved King David to set up a census of Israel without consulting the Lord and on his own impulse. And Satan stood up against Israel, provoked David to number Israel. He influenced a man of God to go against what the Lord had clearly taught. verse 2, And David said to Joab and, and to the rulers of the people, Go, number Israel, from Beersheba even to Dan, and bring the number of them to me, that I may know it. He wanted to see out of his own pride just how strong Israel was. He'd forgotten the many battles that Israel and he himself had fought, where it was the Lord who gave the victory. And again, Satan was used of the Lord to discipline his own people. And on this occasion, 70,000 men were taken from Israel. Again, we have to remember that Israel was under the Mosaic Covenant, a conditional covenant that there is a nation willingly made with the Lord. Physical blessings for obedience and reliance upon him, as opposed to increased discipline on the nation for disobedience, idolatry, and self-sufficiency. And the Lord would use Satan and his host as instrumental and his punishment of the nation, and of individuals too, as we've seen. Because Satan loves nothing better than to see individuals, particularly believers, and even nations, fall, just as he fell. And it seems he's even willing to help the Lord in the process, because because of the same sin that he fell with in the first place, that of pride. That great sin that we all have a measure of, to some degree, as a part of our fallen nature. But as Paul explained in his epistles... We're no longer under the bondage of the law, with its physical blessings for obedience and cursings for disobedience, but we're under the Lord's grace, aren't we, in this age? As Paul said in Romans 6:14 and 15, if you'll turn there, Romans 6:14 and 15. "For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace." What then, shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? God forbid. He's talking about taking the Lord's grace for granted and continuing in sin anyway, knowing that all our sins are forgiven. But as Paul said, God forbid. Just because our sins are forgiven doesn't mean there are no consequences, does it? The man who abuses his wife or his family in whatever way, then there are consequences. Those who break the law, even as believers, are still under the law of this land. And there'll be consequences, as we've all seen. Not to mention the spiritual consequences, which are far longer lasting. And the, pre- the question of consequences for sin in the life of a believer aside, because that's another topic that we hear in Romans just to remind ourselves of the change of age, from that of law to that of grace. There's grace where God blesses us all up front when we come to faith in him with all spiritual blessings and note i said spiritual blessings not physical blessings that was the old covenant but we are grafted into the new and while there will be physical blessings for israel to whom the new covenant was made in the future kingdom um, for those who are faithful to the lord as well as spiritual blessings just as there was for israel of old in this age of grace where salvation from the penalty of sin and the presence of the holy spirit within us then the physical blessings of the old conditional covenant, as well as the physical blessings promised to Israel, when the new covenant with them is enacted, are not promised. As Paul said in Ephesians 1 verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Please note where those blessings are. That place which David pointed out last week, we'll receive our future reward or crown in the heavenly places. And then, having received all spiritual blessings up front, Paul then beseeches us to walk worthy of them. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. Ephesians four one. And then in Colossians chapter one, verse ten and eleven, that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to, the glo- to his glorious power, unto all patience and long suffering with joyfulness. Some of those good works that now as blessed believers we should walk in them, as Paul reminded the Ephesian church in chapter 2. We're part of the body of Christ, who will one day be judging angels themselves according to 1 Corinthians 6, verse 3. So what role does Satan take on in this age of grace? One of the blessings that we possess right at the moment, we have, uh, we believe, has to do with the Holy Spirit, doesn't it? He seals us from that day until the day of redemption, Ephesians 1, 13. And he dwells in us as, as in a temple, according to Paul, back in 1 Corinthians 6, again in verse, this time in verse 19. What know you not that your your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? We're individually members of the body of Christ, and members of one another. Whatever sufferings we've endured as believers during this pandemic, or will endure when it's over, if the Lord doesn't return for us first, isn't from Satan, but from the natural consequences of still living in a fallen world of which we are still a part as the Lord told his disciples before he departed from them when they asked of him when he'd return in Matthew 24 7 he said this for nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places and what we've gone through over the past 16 months and still are has been one of those pestilences that the Lord spoke of of which over the millennia there have been many. All these things are a result of still living in a world cursed by sin, as Paul reminded the Romans in chapter 8 and verses 22 to 23. Romans chapter 8, verses 22 to 23. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit... Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit, the redemption of our body. Can Satan physically attack believers in this age with the Lord's permission as he did with Job? Well, the book of Revelation aside, where the church isn't present but in heaven, and he obviously does attack believers then, as the final fling of anti-Semitism takes place under the Antichrist, in which Satan will once again attempt for the last time to wipe out the Jewish people in order to prevent the Lord fulfilling the new covenant with them. The only example we have um, from Paul's Paul's epistles onwards is the thorn in the flesh that was given to the Apostle Paul, which in his words was a messenger from Satan to stop him becoming proud because of the abundance of revelations given to him by the Lord. But those revelations are long gone, aren't they? Nobody gets revelations now from the Lord. One example in the old, old Testament, that of Job and one in the New. And what can, but what can he do? Well, what he does is to influence believers just as he did with King Ahab and King David. As Paul said in Ephesians 2 and from verse 10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armour of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you you the whole armour of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness." And your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. After all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Word of God. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. As Paul teaches, our battle is a spiritual one, isn't it? Not a physical one. At the Bible conference at Derby the other week, the subject matter of the conference was our blessed hope. That one day we're going to exchange this body of flesh that we now live in, with all of its aches and pains, its disease and suffering, for the one that the Lord will give to us on that day. And the point one of the speakers at the conference made was, Satan is robbing the church, Of the blessed hope and that made me think he's been robbing the church of that blessed hope that we speak and sing of so often in this church right since the start as Peter reminded his readers in 2 Peter 3 knowing this first that there shall come forth in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying where is the promise of his coming for since the father's fell asleep all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation for this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. So how does he do it? What does the Bible teach us about Satan's role in this church age? Well, we've already read the passage from Ephesians. We are no longer under the old covenant with physical blessings for obedience. And as we've heard, all spiritual blessings have already been given to us up front when we, when we first trusted in the Lord as our Savior turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 13 and to set the background from from chapter 10 verse 7 up to chapter 11 verse 15 Paul Paul's been confronting false apostles those who taught another gospel other than the true gospel of salvation through faith in Christ alone for their salvation without the addition of any works and while Paul had parried the accusations of his opponents at previous points in the letter, they hadn't been the direct fo- focal, point of a, um, focal point of his address up until now. But they were in this passage here. So who were these false teachers? Well, chapter 11, 22, apparently they were Jews. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham so am I we don't know where they came from but we do know that they believe themselves to be apostles of Christ as Paul said in verse 23 are they ministers of Christ and it was a claim that Paul would reject because in verse 13 we read for such are false apostles deceitful workers transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ these false apostles even brought letters of recommendation In chapter 3, verse 1, we read, Do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or need we, as some others, epistles of commendation to you? Or letters of recommendation from you? They indulged in self-recommendation. For not he that commendeth himself has approved, but whom the Lord commendeth. Chapter 10, verse 18. And one of the things that commended them more to the Corinthian church... Much like the modern day church and the way of the world is that they were more fluent in their speech than Paul was. For though I be rude in speech, yet not in knowledge, verse 6. It's well known that Paul had a speech impediment of some sort in which which in the eyes of some of them made their message that, that of the false prophets, or false apostles, sorry, more acceptable than his. Is it like that in the modern church? Well, you know it is, don't you? Dr. William Shedd, who lived in the 1800s, said this It's a dark day for a church, and it betokens great spiritual decline when people cease to be content with thoughtful, devout, and scriptural teaching and clamour for celebrated preachers. The demand will create the supply, and the church will be filled with charlatans. In Paul's day, it was a false gospel that they presented, a gospel that added conformity to the law of Moses. faith in order to be saved which takes us back to our question what does the Bible teach teach teaches about Satan's role in this age in this church age and it's answered here in verses 13 and 14 for such are false apostles deceitful workers transforming themselves into the Apostles of Christ and no marvel we shouldn't be surprised should we for Satan himself has transformed into an angel of light He and his followers set themselves up as ministers of righteousness, although influence those whose first priority isn't to teach the word in a thoughtful, devout and scriptural way, as Mr. Shedd put it. Teaching according to Paul in 1 Timothy 4 and verse 1, Now the spirit, spirit speaketh expressly, that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. And in order for their message and their doctrines to be successful They had to teach some kind of righteousness Of which Satan is a minister of, according to Paul And they have to look enough like the genuine article In order to deceive the church, don't they? If their message varied too much from the message that Paul brought to the church That salvation could be found through faith in Jesus Christ And in him alone Then few in the church would have followed them And they added works to faith, so that the assurance that the Lord grants to his people is gone. More recently, John MacArthur said this, We cannot simply flow with the current age. We cannot elevate love while downplaying truth. We cannot promote unity by depressing, repressing sound doctrine. We cannot learn to be discerning by making an idol out of tolerance. By adopting those attitudes, the church has opened their gates to all of Satan's Trojan horses. And the body of Christ becomes diluted and ineffective, and the gospel is rejected in favour of conformity with the world. And we see that, don't we, in the the current um, mainline church. As we know, down through the ages, the name of Christ and the word of God has been twisted to mean all sorts of different things, hasn't it? There were those in the early church who claimed that Jesus was not fully God, such as the Arian heresy from which spring our modern-day Jehovah's Witnesses movement, leading to the conclusion that a sacrifice isn't sufficient for us and that we have to add our own works to have any chance to be saved, and then it's not guaranteed. And incidentally, if you want to know how they now expect you to pay, you, they now expect you to pay your own postage for their material, um, as Carol found out, the other day we had, a, we had um, a card through the post and it was addressed to the occupants of our address. And she said to me, she said, Have you ordered anything, Paul? I said, No. Have you ordered anything? No. This must be from the council then. So she put three stamps on it and went up to the, up to the post office and, and posted it, sorry. Anyway, what happened the next day? The same card came back with the three stamps on it that she would put on it. So she went storming up to the post office up at Butt Lane and confronted them because after all they should have sent the letter by now, shouldn't they? And what was it? It was a letter from a lady at the Kingdom Hall down in, Chel- in Chel- uh, Chelith Road inviting us to a, um, their online conference. <laughs> How to make friends and influence people, eh? <laughs> we had others who taught that God didn't really come in the flesh or, or others that the spirit of Jesus departed from him before he was crucified. All taken away from the the sufficiency of the Lord's sacrifice for us there on the cross. We've got some in the modern day churches of various denominations who teach that since Israel rejected the kingdom and then we're now in the kingdom. And now I've lost my place. (laughs) So you'll have to bear with me a second. So Satan's been robbing the church of their blessed hope and he's been doing it right from the outset. He's he's done a good job of deceiving those who are seeking after righteousness by inducing them with a righteousness that is self-seeking or self-fulfilling and that doesn't rely solely on the Lord's grace. A false gospel or he attempts to rob those who've already trusted in the Lord of what is already theirs through false systems of sanctification that we contribute through our own efforts to become more like our savior rather than through his grace towards us and they lose their assurance and we could go on all night talking about these things we haven't even begun to talk about the numerous religions that is established throughout history some of which will even execute those who don't conform to their particular brand of righteousness And we know there's there's one in particular that's at the forefront, don't we now, in in these days? All in the name of a kind of righteousness of which Satan is the master. And we need to remind ourselves once again that the time is short, that one day our Saviour is going to appear in the skies and call us home to be with Him. As Paul taught the Corinthian church towards the end of chapter 15 Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. And if there's anyone here or listening online that's never trusted in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ there on the cross, as being totally sufficient to make them right with God, That at the moment of faith in him, your sins, which have already been imputed to him there on the cross nearly 2,000 years ago, are now exchanged for his righteousness, given to you at the moment you trust him. It's an irreversible transaction, promised by the Lord himself, whereby you're adopted into the family of God for all eternity. If you've yet to make that decision to trust in him, then now's the time to put your faith in him. And him alone as Paul told the Philippian jailer who asked what must I do to be saved and Paul's answer believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and if you're a believer here tonight and I know most of you are then don't let the distraction this of this world and we all know what they are rob you of your blessed hope rob you of your time in the word whereby we remind ourselves daily of all that the Lord has already accomplished for us, because we often need reminding, don't we? And we need to rightly divide it too, so we don't get carried away with false teaching that presents physical blessings as a reward in this life for obedience, as it rightly did with Israel, to whom the Lord made that promise. And we need to hold on to that knowledge that whatever trials or tribulations may come our way, and they will, that the Lord is coming back for us, perhaps sooner than we think, to complete the work that is already begun in us, and that we will then be like him. We're saved by grace, and we're sanctified by the same means. And one day his unsurpassable grace towards us who believe will transform this mortal body, soul and spirit, into one just like his. That's going to be amazing, isn't it? No more tears, no more suffering, the old things have passed away. But if he doesn't come back in our lifetime, then we need to remember what the psalmist said in Psalm 116 and verse 15. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. That point at which we pass from this life, with all of its aches and pains and its troubles, into all that the Lord has promised for those who love him in the heavenly places. Amen. Amen.